So in your last class, you reviewed normal AMP of the skin and dermatologic terminology, and you also talked about strategies to keep the skin healthy. So now we're going to shift gears and we're going to start talking about different pathologic conditions that you may see affecting the lower extremity, the feet of the clients you deal with. And in this class, we're going to talk about general pathologic conditions, pressure injuries, arthritic conditions, and conditions affecting self-care. And then we'll move into more specific um, pathologies. So we're going to talk about pathology, clinical presentation, management guidelines for general pathologic conditions that could affect the health of the lower extremities. As I said, we're going to focus on pressure injuries, musculoskeletal conditions, and conditions affecting someone's ability to provide self-care. So we'll start with pressure injuries. Um, when we think about pressure injuries, most of us think primarily about bed-bound individuals. We think about ischial wounds, sacral wounds, maybe trochanteric wounds. But of course, pressure injuries can occur anywhere from the back of the head to the heels, um, even occasionally the sides of the feet. So could you be dealing with pressure injuries and caring for someone as a foot and nail care nurse, absolutely. So of course you know what a pressure injury is. It's ischemic damage to the skin and the soft tissue caused by unrelieved pressure and or shear. And of course what pressure and shear cause in the tissue, it causes vessel compression. When you compress the vessels, you reduce blood flow and you get ischemic damage, which may be irreversible. Now your individuals at risk, we already said we automatically think of people who are bed bound, but what about people who are chair bound? Yes, they're at risk too, but your chair bound individuals are more likely to develop ischial ulcers, so not really affecting lower extremity. But what about bed bound patients and heels or the sides of the feet. And what about patients who are in splints or casts or who are using removable cast walkers? We definitely are going to see all of those individuals in our role as a foot and nail care nurse. And those individuals are definitely at risk for pressure injury, especially if they are neuropathic. So specifically, the sites at risk for pressure injury when we're focused on lower extremity and feet, the knees, possibly, but much more likely the ankles, the malleoli. So you can see pressure injuries on the internal or the external medial or lateral malleoli. You definitely see pressure injuries on heels. That's now the second most common site um, for pressure injuries in the U.S. And as I've said, on the sides of the feet, over the bunion bone, over the bunionette bone, especially in people who are wearing cast or splints or removable cast walkers. So anytime you have someone in a medical device, 
They are at risk for pressure injury. If they're in a medical device and they also have neuropathy, they're very high risk for a pressure injury. So boiling it all down, where are we going to see pressure injuries? Over a bony prominence or under a medical device. Now, the pathologic mechanisms resulting in pressure injury, we've already referred to a couple. We've talked about intense or unrelieved pressure, compressing the blood vessels, reducing blood flow, causing tissue ischemia. Shear force can also contribute or cause pressure injuries. What happens with shear force is you get tissue layers sliding against each other. So I want you to think about your patient who's bedbound and may be restless and constantly p digging their heels in and pushing, digging and pushing. And you can get tissue layers moving against each other. When tissue layers move against each other, blood vessels get kinked, angled, compressed. So pressure and or shear. The third thing we always talk about when we talk about pressure injury formation is tissue tolerance. If your tissues are very healthy, let's say your normal weight, so you have normal padding over your bony prominences, <clears throat> your arterial system is healthy, there's no compromise there, so your tissues are well perfused, you have no edema, you're not febrile, then you're relatively low risk, your tissues are healthy. But what if you have lower extremity arterial disease, so your tissues are chronically ischemic, and now they're exposed to pressure? Or what if you're very, very malnourished and you have practically no soft tissue padding over your bony prominences? then yes, you're gonna get greater impact, greater compression of the um, bone against the vessel. What if you're febrile? It alters your metabolic rate, your demand for oxygen, and so any ischemia causes greater tissue damage. So some patients are higher risk than others. So when we're looking at individuals at risk, we're looking at those who are immobile so that they have intense or unrelieved pressure. We're looking at those who are restless and may be digging in and pushing. We're looking at people who are higher risk because of underlying medical conditions. Now there's two other things that may contribute to pressure injury um, formation. One is reperfusion injury. So you think, well, what is reperfusion injury? You may be familiar with that already because we talk a lot about reperfu reperfusion injury when we talk about um, cardiac events and to some extent cerebral vascular events. So you think, okay, I have a patient, that patient's immobile, the heel's on the bed, the vessels over the heel are compressed, so there's minimal or no blood flow through those vessels. Now I come back and I relieve the pressure. I turn the patient and I take the pressure off the heels. What reperfusion injury is, is that when blood flow stopped, 
small clots formed because the blood was just sitting there. And when blood flow is restored, those clots get swept downstream and can occlude smaller vessels. In addition, ischemia causes release of inflammatory substances that can damage the endothelium. So we'll come back to reperfusion injury. And then there's some evidence that prolonged pressure may directly damage the cytoskeleton of the cell. Again, more research needed. But we know for sure that ischemia plays a role. We know for sure shear plays a role. And we know that any um, underlying condition that renders the tissues more vulnerable plays a role. Reperfusion might, direct damage to the cell might play a role. Now, when we talk lower extremities and feet, heels and ankles are your highest risk areas. Because as you can see from this illustration, think about the heel bone on the calcaneus. It's a big bone. But now palpate your own heel. How much fat do you have over that heel bone? Not very much. So you have a large bone with minimal padding. And that means that the impact of the bone against the vessel when the tissues are compressed, that vessel is almost completely collapsed very rapidly. If your patient already has lower extremity arterial disease, that means that even at baseline, the tissues are borderline ischemic because there's not enough blood flow. And so how much compression would it take? How much unrelieved pressure would it take for that patient to develop a severe pressure injury? Not much. What about a patient with lower extremity neuropathic disease? The problem there is because they have lost sensory awareness, they don't even realize that they're sustaining ischemic damage. So they stay in the same position or they wear that cast or that splint. They don't complain because they don't feel pain. So obviously they're much higher risk. So heels and ankles, highest risk areas, your patients, who are high-risk immobile patients, patients with LEAD, patients with LEND. Now, following up on heels and ankles, studies have shown that heels are very high-risk for pressure injury, even in patients who are on pressure redistribution surfaces. So even if I had that patient in the hospital um, on an air mattress, can they still develop a heel pressure injury? Yes, because it's a big bone, minimal fat padding, and if we don't keep that heel off the bed, very high risk for pressure injury. So as you see, the way we prevent heel pressure injuries in our bed-bound patients especially is either offloading boots, like you see on the top left, which literally lifts the heel off the bed, also protects the ankles, or you can use uh, pillows positioned lengthwise. So you need two pillows, one under each lower leg. They should extend from above the heel to below the knee. You want to protect the bony prominences. You also want to protect the Achilles.
The other thing you can think about if you look at the uh, bottom, the illustration on the bottom right, if you're using pillows for protection, you might want to add a silicone adhesive foam dressing to the heel because we know that sometimes patients kick off of the pillows or the pillows become dislodged and you want some backup protection. And silicone adhesive foam heel dressings have been shown to afford some level of protection. Okay, so we have talked a little bit about who's at risk for pressure injuries and what are the mechanisms of damage. So now we're gonna talk about the clinical characteristics. These are things that you basically already know as a nurse, so we'll go through this pretty quickly. We've already said location, two sites. So pressure injuries consistently occur either over bony prominences where blood vessels get compressed between the bone internally and the resting surface. So between the bone and the bed, between the bone and the chair, or under a medical device like a cast or a splint. Again, cast splints rigid so you can compress the soft tissue and the blood vessels between the bone internally, the cast or splint externally. And I'm sure many of you have had patients who were being treated for an orthopedic issue and we took off the cast and we found that they had a pressure injury because they also had neuropathy. What about depth? Well, pressure injuries can be partial thickness, they can be limited to the skin layers, but more commonly, they extend all the way through the skin layers to involve deeper soft tissue, the fat, the muscle, possibly the bone. What about contours? Well, if it's just pressure, there's no shear, then usually the pressure injury reflects the size and shape of the underlying bone, or the medical device. Um, if you have a combination of pressure and shear, then you can have elongated wounds, you can have irregular wounds, you can have tunneling and undermining. So if the wound is caused only by pressure, typically round, maybe slightly oval, no significant tunneling or undermining. Um, but with combination of pressure and shear, yes, very common to see irregularities, elongation, tunneling, and undermining. What about the wound bed? Well, go back to the mechanism of injury. The mechanism of injury with a pressure injury is ischemia, loss of blood flow. So necrosis is very common, very common to see slough or eschar, or dark purple discoloration indicating loss of blood flow to that area. You don't see that with other types of injury nearly so often. So necrotic tissue, a common finding with pressure injury, uncommon with other types of injury. The wound bed is usually pale, especially if the patient has coexisting lower extremity arterial disease. Um, so it would reflect the absence or the diminished perfusion. 
And the volume of extradate is variable. It depends on the size and the depth of the wound and again on perfusion status. So just cycling back around to reinforce the critical pathologic events and then we'll talk about um, staging. So you know when you think about the effects of unrelieved pressure, you think about the vascular system, you've got big arteries, smaller arteries, arterioles, capillary bed, venules, veins, big veins. And you know that the critical exchange of nutrients and oxygen with waste products and carbon dioxide happens at the capillary level. So yes, we need every component of the vascular system to be healthy, but in the end, it gets down to the capillary bed, which is the most fragile component of the vascular system. That's where you've got very small vessels, very thin-walled vessels that are easily collapsed. And it's critical that the capillary bed be patent and healthy if we're going to maintain tissue viability. So that's the end point of the circulatory system. Unfortunately, the capillary bed is very low pressure. So it doesn't take a lot of external force to collapse the capillary bed and cause tissue ischemia. That's our point. <laughs> now the good news is that short-term occlusion is well tolerated. Um, we all experience short-term occlusion. We go to our kids' sports event and we're sitting on bleachers and they're hard as can be and we're wiggling, 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 but that's because we have a built-in pressure injury prevention system. If I do sit down on concrete or wood bleachers, immediately the soft tissue over my ischial tuberosities is compressed between the bone internally and that bleacher externally. And so immediately, my tissues start to become ischemic. But as long as I have intact sensory function, that ischemia is uncomfortable. It hurts. I start having tingling discomfort. And what do I do? I shift my position. So our built-in pressure injury prevention system is intact sensation and intact mobility. Intact sensation means I recognize that my tissues are developing ischemia. My tissues are at risk. Intact mobility means that I alter my position to restore blood flow and to address and reverse the ischemia. <clears throat> now you follow that out, like you see on the last bullet point, and our patients who have reduced sensory awareness, either because of some kind of neurologic issue, because of cognitive impairment, um, or because of neuropathy, and our patients with reduced mobility are the ones at increased risk for pressure injury. Now what happens when your blood vessels are occluded 
We've already said you start to lose blood flow to the tissues in that area and you start to experience cell death. But remember, you also have lymphatic vessels that help to prevent edema that pick up um, residual fluid and return it to the bloodstream. And if you compress the lymphatics, then in addition to sustaining ischemic damage, your tissues start to develop edema which further compromises perfusion. We've already talked about the possibility that reperfusion injury plays a role in pressure injury development. And again, we talked about there being two mechanisms of injury when we talk about reperfusion damage. One is the effect of microthrombi that form when you have a low flow situation and then get flushed downstream to occlude smaller arteries. And we talked about the fact that you produce oxygen-free radicals, inflammatory agents, in response to ischemia, and those oxygen-free radicals cause direct damage to the endothelium that can cause the endothelium to shed cells, and that also contributes to vessel occlusion. Now, we also have to think about the impact of repeated episodes of ischemia because patients who are at risk are at risk 24-7. So let's say I meant to come and turn you after two hours, but I was so busy and we had a code and I didn't come and turn you, but I came and turned you after four hours. Well, if I could see internally, I would see ischemic damage to the tissues. But I, if I look externally, nothing shows up yet. And I think, wow, I got by, everything's okay. But what I need to know is that any level of internal tissue damage increases the metabolic rate, increases oxygen demands. And so the next time that I'm slow to get back to turn the patient, additional damage occurs at an even earlier point. In other words, maybe the first time the patient was able to tolerate three hours of immobility and damage didn't occur until after that third hour. But once the metabolic rate rises in response to tissue damage, the patient may only be able to tolerate two hours of immobility before additional damage begins to occur. So we have to be alert to that phenomenon as well, particularly for our bed-bound, chair-bound patients, as well as our patients in splints and casts. And finally, there's been research into the impact of tissue deformation. So if you could see underneath when you're sitting on that hard um, bleacher, you would see the tissues compressed right over the bone. And you would see that when you compress the tissue right over the bone, you collapse those vessels and blood shunts from the point of compression to the open vessels all around. That is tissue deformation. You compress vessels here, blood shunts, leaving an acutely ischemic center. Can also cause interstitial fluid shifts and that further contributes to cell death.
Now, we talked about some of our patients are higher risk than others for uh, pressure injury, so this just lines that out. Any patient who has diminished blood flow at baseline because of lower extremity arterial disease, because they're shocky and they um, experience hypotensive episodes or they go to surgery and they have hypotensive episodes. Obviously, any patient on vasopressors, that won't be your patient. Um, edema and smoking, all of those things diminish blood flow at baseline. We've talked about people who are very thin, people who have muscle and soft tissue wasting, so there's essentially no padding over the ankle bone, no padding over the heel bone. They're gonna get rapid vessel compression and extreme vessel compression with rapidly developing ischemia and fever because it increases the metabolic rate. Let's see if I can get this going in the right direction there. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about what we see clinically in response to pressure injury development and as that pressure injury develops. So what's the normal response? Let's say um, lying in bed, my heels are on the bed, the vessels right over my heels are compressed. But I have you as my very attentive nurse, and so you come back at two, two and a half hours and you turn me and you restore blood flow. You're gonna see a phenomenon known as reactive hyperemia. So what does that mean? It means that when I'm lying on my back with my heels on the bed and the vessels are compressed, if you could look underneath, you'd see an area of pallor where there's no blood flow. But in response to tissue ischemia, all the vessels in the area dilate, trying to get more blood to the area. So when you come to turn me two hours, 10 minutes later, blood rushes into those dilated vessels and you see an area of warmth and redness. That's a good thing. That's essentially tissue CPR in progress. So now blood, oxygen, nutrients being delivered to the area to meet the tissue's needs. Now, Reactive hyperemia is a physiologic response, but how can you at the bedside differentiate between this and maybe in an inflammatory response in, because of tissue damage? Two ways. Number one, if it's reactive hyperemia, it will be blanchable. So you turn me over, you check my heels, you're like, wow, these heels are red. I hope we haven't sustained any irreversible damage. Let me check. So you press on my heels and it should blanch. That's positive. In addition, reactive hyperemia resolves typically in less than an hour. So you come back to check on me, come back to turn me a couple of hours later, you check my heels again, they're fine. The erythema, the warmth, has resolved because that was a physiologic response. So be sure you're very clear on reactive hyperemia 
If you're a wound care nurse, I know you are. If all this is newer to you, be sure you're clear before you sit for certification. They almost always ask about that. Let's talk about stage one. Stage one looks a lot like reactive hyperemia, but stage one is a pathologic tissue response. So now what's happened is you have sustained some degree of cell damage. So you have a persistent inflammatory response. You know tissue damage, tissue injury, tissue ischemia, causes localized inflammation. So it causes the vessels in the area to dilate. Again, how do you distinguish a red warm area that is normal and due to reactive hyperemia? How do you differentiate between that and an inflammatory response, a pathologic response? If it's a stage one, if it's pathologic, it's non-blanchable. So when you press against it, you do not see pallor. It remains red and warm, and it does not resolve. So when you come back two hours later, it's still there. So be sure you're clear on the difference between stage one and reactive hyperemia. You need to know the stages of pressure injuries, so be sure you're clear on that. DTI, deep tissue injury, is what you see on the um, bottom left, and that is a purple-red discoloration of intact skin. So the skin remains intact, but now you've got this purple-red discoloration or you may have a blood-filled blister. So either purple-red discoloration or a blood-filled blister should be classified as deep tissue injury. Then stage two, stage three, and stage four. Stage two is superficial skin loss. It'll be very shallow, superficial. You'll have a pink-red, white base, and typically those wounds heal quickly by resurfacing with new skin so long as we manage them correctly. Stage three, stage four. Stage three extends to the fat. Stage four extends to muscle, tendon, or bone. So staging is dependent on accurate identification of structures within the wound bed. Again, if you're a wound care nurse, you already know this. If this is new to you, go back and study staging. Make sure you're very clear. Now, how do we manage pressure injuries? The most critical thing is to eliminate the source of injury. So offload the area. If I have a right heel pressure injury, the most critical thing is to get my heel off the bed, off the chair, off of whatever it's on. If I've been wearing a splint, and I have a pressure injury over the ankle bone, I need to be out of that splint. A new splint needs to be created and padded or windowed to protect that bony prominence. The next thing we're gonna talk about is musculoskeletal conditions. Many people who end up in a foot and nail clinic come because they say, I can't do it anymore. I can't get to my nails. The last time I tried to cut my nails, I cut my toe. 
So we're going to quickly review the most common musculoskeletal conditions, and we're going to talk about management because one of the questions we should always be asking is, who are you seeing for this? And do you have a physician who's following you for your arthritis? If not, we need to make appropriate referrals. So osteoarthritis, you're probably very familiar with. We also call this wear and tear arthritis, where you have progressive loss of cartilage in the joints. Very common, especially among the elderly. Causes a lot of pain, a lot of stiffness. So you hear people saying, boy, it's really hard to get going in the morning. By midday, I'm better. Um, one of the distinguishing things between osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, which you probably know, is that with osteoarthritis, there's no deformity and no loss of function. People retain basic range of motion. It's the pain and the stiffness. And the primary joints affected are knees and hips, which you can see would then impact significantly on mobility and my ability to lean over, reach my feet, reach my nails, do appropriate foot and nail care. So lots of people out there with osteoarthritis, um, common management modalities, anti-inflammatory medications. Many times people are getting um, episodic injections into the joint, like a combination of steroids, and um, analgesics, arthroscopy. And the critical question for us, are you being followed or do you need a referral? Rheumatoid arthritis, very different than osteoarthritis, fortunately less common. We wish it was even more rare than it is. It's an autoimmune disorder, as you know, the big problem with rheumatoid arthritis, significant deformity, major loss of function, as well as pain and stiffness. The other big thing about rheumatoid arthritis is that it affects smaller joints as well as the larger joints. So knees, ankles, wrists, shoulders, fingers. You're gonna see a lot of people who can't do anything in regards to foot and nail care because when you look at their hands, they have major deformities as well as stiffness and pain. So rheumatoid arthritis, common reason for someone to need professional foot and nail care. And you can see management, anti-inflammatories again, but because it's autoimmune and etiology, biologic agents frequently um, are the mainstay of therapy physiotherapy to help maintain functional status to the extent possible and to compensate as much as possible. And again, even more than with osteoarthritis, critical to make sure that these patients are being followed. They should be followed by a rheumatologist who is gonna be very familiar with the most appropriate biologics and anti-inflammatories. Then there's two types of arthritis that are much less common. But again, if anybody's gonna see these types, you are in a foot and nail clinic. 
and almost always they ask about this on certification. So gout, as you know, um, much less common, almost always affects the great toe. I always think of gout in relation to the great toe, but can also affect ankles and knees. And as you probably remember, gout is caused by an accumulation of uric acid crystals in the joints, and those crystals cause intense inflammation and severe pain. So if you've ever worked with a patient with gouty arthritis, pain is their overwhelming complaint. So management, there's dietary and lifestyle modifications, reducing alcohol intake, um, reducing intake of um, rich fatty foods. There's medications to reduce uric acid levels. Weight control is important. And then again, making sure the patient's being followed by a rheumatologist. Almost always the answer is yes, because this is so painful. And then probably the least common psoriatic arthritis. Um, this is a complication of psoriasis in some patients. You already know about psoriasis. It's characterized by that red, scaly, very itchy rash. Um, and most people with psoriasis do not have psoriatic arthritis, but an important subset do. They may or may not have already been diagnosed with psoriasis because the rash may or may not precede the joint disease. It's much like rheumatoid arthritis in clinical presentation in that it can cause joint deformities and it frequently involves finger and toe joints. And again, look at management, very comparable to rheumatoid arthritis because um, all, it is considered autoimmune. So biologic ages, anti-inflammatories, and again, is the patient being followed or do they need a referral to rheumatology? Then the last thing we're gonna talk about in this class is just conditions affecting self-care ability. And there's not much we can do about these conditions except do outreach and offer foot and nail services to those with cognitive impairment or mental illness, um, those who are very weak and unable to perform their own nail care. Recognizing that people with obesity, morbid obesity, desperately need foot and nail care. They can't get there to do their own. Um, outreach to those in poverty and to the homeless population. Many foot and nail care nurses participate in health fairs or routinely volunteer at clinics for the homeless to provide foot and nail care. So again, think about where your outreach might be. And looking at people who can no longer safely do their own care who will be paying for care regardless of whether they go to a nail salon or they get it from a foot and nail nurse or they go to a podiatrist. So your patients with cognitive impairment, your patients with general debilitation, um, your patients with obesity, morbid obesity, think about outreach to those populations. Think about your assisted living facilities.
Now, we've talked about general conditions that may affect the lower extremity, the foot and nail, or someone's ability to provide foot and nail care. There are a number of conditions that routinely cause pathology in the lower extremity and in the foot, and that you will have a lot of questions on on the certification exam. So you are going to have separate videos on lower extremity arterial disease, lower extremity venous disease, lymphedema, lower extremity neuropathic disease, and then wounds caused by specific disease processes. So there's gonna be in-depth focus in this course on those conditions. That's what's gonna be coming up next. So just summarizing um, this content, there's many, many things that affect the status and function of the lower extremity, the feet, and the nails. That includes nonspecific pathologic conditions like pressure injuries, like musculoskeletal conditions, like cognitive impairment or obesity. But there's also many pathologic conditions that have a very direct effect on the health of the skin and soft tissues in the lower extremity, and you're gonna have separate classes on those. Our goal for you is that you will be familiar with all of these pathologic conditions and that you will incorporate that knowledge into your comprehensive assessment, that you will be able to identify indicators of the various pathologic conditions, and that you will provide appropriate education, intervention, and referrals. And I think that does it for this one.